Welcome to the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm Jen Sproul, CEO of the Institute of Internal Communication. Our organisations face an onslaught of challenges across the social, economic, political and environmental spectrum. The systems we've used to support 21st century ways of life are weakening. The way we work requires dramatic transformation in response to these challenges. Internal communication is a crucial function that helps organisations achieve lasting change. This podcast explores the intersection between internal communication and the future of work. Every conversation is curated to help internal communicators better understand the risks and leverage opportunity. We really hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I am your co-host Kat Barnard and I am as ever joined by Jen Sproul and Dominic Waters. This is a special episode to mark Mental Health Awareness Week and I'm so delighted that we have a special guest with us today, Georgie Mack. Many of you listeners might be aware of the UK charity Minds at Work, which set up, I think, in 2017 to raise the profile of mental health at work and the impacts of work on mental health. Georgie is one of the co-founders and she's also gone on to found a new business called Peopleful. So rather than me bluster my way through a long and probably inaccurate biog of Georgie. Georgie, welcome. So delighted to have you join us today. Thank you very much, Kat. And I'm totally thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming. I think of you as somebody who, in conjunction with your your co-founders at Minds at Work, has um, kind of paved the way and led the field in terms of raising the profile of mental health in the workplace. I remember, I think I mentioned to this to you when we chatted initially, I, I came to what I believe was probably one of the sort of first events that uh, Minds at Work hosted at the Unilever building back in the spring summer of 2017 and was really impressed by by the way that you went about organising the event and the and the facilitated conversation. So tell us more about, first of all, Minds at Work and what, what led you to, to set up the charity in the first instance. So I'm delighted that you came to one of our early functions. That's amazing. So it, it actually, it all began with, I was inspired by a gentleman called Stephen Feast who he headed up an NHS Mental Health Foundation Trust. And I was working on a project at the time, and he um, it was about trying to use the workplace to get people to be more physically active. And I was interviewing him as a kind of expert, and he said, I just wish, I just wish an organisation like the one I was working for at the time could go out and, and, and do more around raising awareness of mental health and the workplace, because, you know, there's an absolute crisis going on out there and no one's really talking about it or, or doing anything about it. Um, so I actually went off and investigated the stats. And this was a little while ago. And I think it was when probably the main stat that was being um, thrown around was the, the one in four 
one in four of us suffering from mental ill health. And through that journey, I of, of trying to do something more proactively about this, I met a gentleman called Jeff McDonald. He was formerly at Unilever, the global VP of HR at Unilever. And from his own story, he was out on a crusade to try and actually destigmatize mental ill health in the workplace. So we met Jeff and we realized we had these groups of, um, of people that were passionate about creating change in the workplace. So we started to gather informally at my workplace and talk about the topic more and what could be done. And through that came the genesis of Minds at Work. And really, the role of Minds at Work was can we equip people, whoever they are, whether they're an intern, whether they're a CEO, whether they're in HR, could we equip people to be able to go back into their workplaces and make a difference? And that could be in a really small way. That could be about just how do you have a conversation with a colleague who just doesn't seem to be quite themselves? How would you go about having that conversation? Right through to thinking about how could you go and catalyze the board to start thinking about mental health in the workplace in a different way? How could you bring to life a business case that might make them sit up and listen? So that was kind of like one key premise behind it. And the other was just how we could keep on destigmatizing, destigmatizing, destigmatizing. And although we've come a long way, we still have a huge way to go, in my opinion. So that's really how Minds at Work came into being. And I think that's a really interesting point that you raised there, because I think the conversation has come an extraordinarily long way in terms of destigmatizing mental unwellness in the workplace. And we, would, we, we had talked about this on offline, Georgie, I know. And yet, in many corners, it seems like that's where the conversations ended. And I know that you've taken that issue to heart, haven't you? And you've gone on to, to set up your business, Peopleful. So tell us, tell us about that and what led you to formulate that idea, that way of thinking and that value proposition. Yes. So really, the pandemic kicked in and, you know, the whole topic of well-being and mental health seemed to be turbocharged as a result of it. But one of the things that was beginning to disturb me more and more was you were hearing about all these well-being interventions that were happening in workplaces, about all this investment behind well-being. But at the same time, you just weren't hearing any stories about how effective any of this was. You know, so it, it kind of led me to thinking, you know, are any of these initiatives actually reaching the right people? Or is it the same old people turning up time and time again to all of the often very good resources that organisations are putting on on behalf of their employees? You weren't hearing anything about the impact data and one of the things that I am a big believer in, and I hope this doesn't make too many people listening to this wince, is that, you know, I think when when we talk about the topic of well-being, there's very often this feeling that it's all got to be kept very soft and cuddly. And I know that sounds really awful, but, you know, of course, it is an incredibly delicate topic. It can be a very emotional topic. But I do think we have to ground ourselves in the reality of con the context we're talking in, which is a business context. It's a commercial setting. And I think it is reasonable to be running interventions and programs that are both in the interests of employees, but also in the interests of the business. 
so my feeling was that we needed to start getting a better grip on all of this, on the efficacy of these programs. And through various serendipitous conversations, etc., which I won't go into now, the opportunity to set people full up came about. And that was really around some diagnostics that had been created by academics in South Africa that I thought brought some remarkable and different properties to the conversation and enabled you to actually bring data, uh, objective understanding to how the organisation was impacting on the well-being of its people. So suddenly you're having a conversation where you can get a far greater sense of, of impact, of where need is. And you no longer have to take this kind of one-size-fits-all approach. So that's really the story, that the genesis of Peopleful, if you like. So it felt like a very exciting and timely opportunity. Georgia, you described some of the many of the factors that uh, caused you to do what you're doing now. And Kat was saying that things have changed so that some of that stigma has been removed. But I guess a lot of our approach to mental health and our attitudes towards it have been shaped and accelerated by the, the pandemic. So from your perspective, what changes to, I guess, the mental health landscape, if we can call it that, have, have resulted from the pandemic? Yeah, no, I think that's so. a couple of points on that. That's a great question. I think there's a, a couple of things, which is, firstly, I think what the pandemic did is it, where there were kind of cracks and fissures in the organisational structure and, and how people were experienced in the organisation, I think that it became increasingly hard to hide from those. I think they kind of almost, the pandemic accelerated the negative effects of where things were wrong in the workplace. So, I mean, you know, looking at various things, I think we can see that quite often, I mean, for example, if you take the hospitality industry, there were huge, I mean, I think this is true, by the way, of most industry sectors, but there were there were many, many challenges that existed pre-pandemic, that when the pandemic came along, it only served to, to massively exacerbate. So I think there were some things that absolutely existed, but became a lot more apparent, a lot more visible as a result of the pandemic. I think that, you know, on a, from a positive note, I, you know, absolutely no doubt that, you know, that we have turbo boosted the destigmatization journey. I think that's, that's really powerful and definitely accelerated how organizations think about mental health and well-being. But I do think it's true to say that a lot of organizations are at very different levels of maturity when it comes to this topic and particularly in terms of how seriously they take it. And there are some organisations out there doing really good things. There are organisations out there doing a, a whole lot of box ticking. And I think that there are some organisations who honestly think that well-being was something that was indulged and tolerated during the pandemic. And now we need to, and I quote this from an FT article, we need to kind of roll our sleeves up and get back to work, get back to business as usual. And so, you know, and it does feel extraordinary, really, from everything that happened. And if we think about it, you know, that people the world over were experiencing so many similar things that in many ways that the net result of it all is, you know, we're still fussing around whether it's three, two and whether that's mandatory or is it two, three back in the office and this kind of thing. So I would say that some really positive things have come out. But I do think that when it comes to mental health in the workplace, the pandemic kind of kicked out a whole load of new questions that we still don't really have the answers to. And again, I remember kind of 
just after the pandemic, there was lots of talk about the new normal and it, you know, which used to slightly make me wince because I don't think anyone had a clue what the new normal was. And I think we are really still groping our way around that. And I think the best thing is uh, I'm relieved now that one can go to conferences and no one's sitting there pretending they've got the answers. I mean, it feels like a series of experiments to understand and feel our way around some of these really, really big issues. So, you know, I think good things have happened and some negative things have happened, not least the fact that I think, I'm and I'm going to say this, I think wellbeing to some degree, because it has been so relentlessly lacking in data and evidence, you know, has not shot itself in the foot, but it's, I think in some cases it has weakened weakened its chances of being taken as seriously, for example, as DE&I. And I would argue that those things are, by the way, totally interlinked. But if we look at what's going on out there, it does feel like there's DE&I. And when you take DE&I, you get people or whichever way around you wish to put that. You've actually got very senior positions. I think you've got budget, you've got the C-suite sitting up and paying attention. And when you get to well-being, I think not in all, but in many organisations, you get well-being managers who have very little budget and very little autonomy. And I do ask myself, why is it, you know, that DEI feels like it has more bite? And I think it's truly because a lot of leaders are more frightened, possibly reputationally, of getting that wrong. Whereas well-being, with all of its sort of fuzziness, feels like a slightly gentler, softer place that doesn't have to necessarily be prioritised in quite the same way. These are gross generalisations, but, you know, I think they're based on some fact. I think there's, there's a lot in that. And I, and I guess also you could argue, being cynical for a moment, uh, organisations can lose business if their DNI and is, is not up to scratch. It's less likely they're going to lose business if they're not looking too much into wellbeing. I mean, that's a very massive simplification, but it does reflect your point that perhaps there's a high-profile thing there. If I just go back for a moment to what you said about organisations that and now, or the FT ask you referred to, where organisations are saying, come on, we, we should get over this now, let's crack on and, and get some work done effectively. I'm just interested to know what arguments they're using to try and back that up, because it seems very counterintuitive based on what we've seen in the last few years. How can they justify that, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting, I think, which is, and in some cases, and because these things tend to come down to quite binary things like should you be in the office or shouldn't you rather than, than thinking more broadly about flexibility, I suppose that one of the things is that, and I wouldn't totally disagree with this, but actually, you know, people working away from colleagues, away from their teams, away from people, you know, is that having a detrimental effect on people's mental health, for example? So, you know, there is a lot to be said for being around the people that you work with physically. Um, we all know that. So I imagine that is something that people can absolutely fall back on. You know, I know that in certain, particularly in certain industry sectors, that there's a huge, there's been a, you know, a slowdown in learning because people, you know, for example, if we think about the legal sector, where you literally, you know, you you learn on the job, you learn from being around you know, more senior partners, hearing how they deal with certain situations, etc. So, you know, I do believe that there is some learning and value in going back to the office. And, and, you know, certainly from, again, from the data that we've been looking at, people who are working remotely, I think it challenges their mental health and well-being. Absolutely. So I think, you know, you can make arguments. It just feels like 
that's not the only argument. Those can't be the only arguments. And it doesn't mean that well-being and mental health and well-being of employees vanishes just because you come back into the office. It's not as binary as that. And, you know, and I think it's interesting, it'll be interesting to know what other initiatives are in place and what's being done from an employee mental health and well-being perspective where it is being mandated that people come back into the office. George, there's so much interesting stuff that you have just said there. And there's so much I think that Dom's already picked up on. And there's so much that resonates with me. First and foremost, the thing you were talking there, for example, about DNI. And I think it comes back to your piece around data as well and how we're able to capture evidence easier, perhaps more so, not always, in those landscapes than perhaps in in what can be perhaps mental wellness can be more complex in how we interpret, categorize, understand, align solutions to that as well. And I'm also intrigued as well by a lot that you've just talked about in terms of, I think there's been so much good, as you say, that came out of the pandemic for the, that bore cracks. I think it raised empathy. It raised human understanding. It has helped, I think, with that, that, that destigmatization. And as you say, coming back to it, and we're now trying to get back to making answers before we continue on that journey together of where we work and how we work. And I think the erosion of relationships has been been something else. But I think that also as well, we've never seen, I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem to be going anywhere that we feel that sense of burnout, overwhelming, perfection, disinformation, anxiety, not knowing all of that is playing into it and, and how we're still trying to still still make life work. But that's just some reflections on what you said. And within all of that, I think what I want to chat about, so a whole complex place that we're now in now and still trying to experiment, as you say, what concerns you most about how employees are approaching mental health at work today? Is it still do you think too tick-boxy or too difficult to be thinking about solutions? Is it because we're still not understanding it enough? Or is there just still the fact that we, I guess, are grappling with a new era that raises new issues? I mean, there's a few different concerns, but one of them, and I guess this is how at Peopleful we kind of think about it very much, is I think that lots of organisations are doing some really well-intentioned things. But there is this slight thing of when it comes to the topic of well-being, it's sort of well-being in will equal well-being out. So, you know, and I know this, I, I don't mean this to sound cynical. I think there's absolutely a place for things like, you know, doing mental health weeks, doing yoga, doing mental health first aid, mental health first aiders, all of those sorts of things. I think there is a really good place for all of them. But I do think that if an organisation wants to affect change, that one of its starting points is what is the impact the organisation is having on the well-being of its people. And why I say that is because if you can understand that, it is within the gift of that organisation to do something about it. So, you know, of course, there are seismic things going on around the world at a geopolitical level. uh, You know, I mean, it's all alarming, frightening, often, you know, very, very sad stuff. But an organisation is going to struggle to change all of that. It can shore up some of the damage it's doing on its employees from a kind of external perspective, etc. But if it can understand its role, whether, I mean, burnout is a fantastic example, actually. I, I think it's massively 
misunderstood. I think the words burnout are bandied around hugely. But, you know, the the definition of burnout is, uh, you know, it's the result of chronic workplace stress that's not been successfully managed. So if an organisation can figure out, I mean, that is purely occupationally driven. So if you can understand your role in doing that, you can actually do something about it. You can affect change. And I think that's both terrifying for employers, but also quite exciting. It's terrifying because I think often you think, oh, my goodness, burnout, burnout, burnout. What do we think is causing burnout? Oh, my God, everyone's got too much work to do. Everyone's got too much work to do. This is an incredibly demanding workplace. There is no way we're going to be able to change that. So better to pull the blanket over our heads just and just kind of ignore it and hope that it goes away. And I don't, this sounds a bit strange to say, but the exciting thing about burnout is that actually there are lots of different things that are driving it. And so if you can get behind the term burnout, if you can get behind that and understand what's driving it, you know, there's a real chance that you can, without having to bring in some huge costly intervention, start doing things about it. And it is, by the way, not just about workload. I mean, workload is definitely a contributor. But again, if you put the right resources in place and try and balance that out a bit, you can start making quite a big difference. So I suppose my fear is that lots of organisations are doing great things, but it's all around well-being in equals well-being out. There's a great phrase, actually. There's a great thing. And given the kind of South African origins of our diagnostics, I feel like I'm, I, I, can, I can talk Desmond Tutu. But he talks about the fact that we need to stop hauling people out of the river and actually go upstream and start understanding why they're falling in in the first place. And I just, I mean, that sounds like a blinding, bleeding obvious, but so much of this stuff I think is. But if you can just go up there and understand why people are falling in rather than and I think with a lot of these interventions you are literally their interventions around hauling people out of the river but you know so yes you're shoring up some of the damage short term but if you really want to address it you need to go a lot further up and you you need to get a lot more forensic I think around what the organization is doing. That's fascinating, Georgia. And I think it, it feels like it's something you're describing as whatever that systemic thing is in your issue, it, it's systemic and it's finding what those are in that. And I think that what that highlights to me, which is something we're seeing in, in some research that, that we're doing as well, is that this whole point around where we're at now is we need to get out there and, and understand and listen and engage to fully understand the problems that need solving to make that right thing. And as you say, it could come back to some way that processes are done or systems or usage could come down to culture, could come down to behaviours. Those are the systemic things that will then help us understand what the monumental changes need and how to address them. Because I think we just feel happy in solutions, but it feels bigger than that. Yes, I absolutely absolutely agree with that I think it's you know because there's a lot of organizations deploy listening strategies but I don't I I sometimes think those aren't as compelling as they could be because do you really know what you're listening out for I think you know this is one of the challenges and and we're very locked and again absolutely don't get me wrong they have their place but you know even if we think about engagement you know it's bigger than just engagement I mean you can be passionate about what you do passionate about what you do very engaged very motivated but if you're lacking energy for example you will struggle to deliver on that so you know taking a few steps back looking at things more systemically I think organizations challenging themselves to think about those tools that they're using 
you know, where you see things go a little bit up and a little bit down, but there's no nasty surprises and they go up and they go down and they go up and they go down and they kind of throw out sort of, I think sometimes insight can be a bit generous, but you know, some kind of some sort of understanding that then isn't really acted on and then nothing really changes and everything kind of trots on as usual. But I think, but the interesting thing about that is I think market forces will start to play a stronger and stronger role and it won't be able to trot on as usual and employees will become more demanding. And, it, you know, I mean, we know what's going on with talent anyway and things will have to change and even the legislative landscape, you know, is slowly changing and if these things accelerate just a little bit I think organizations are going to have to really think quite hard about what tools they're using and what they're listening out for and are they taking a long and hard look at what they're doing yeah absolutely and I'm, before I pass over the baton so I think Kat's going to jump in in a minute but I think that's so fascinating what you said and I guess one with the work that you've done with people full and things that you're doing and I, going back to what you said earlier about business impact and perhaps that's the way to get that listening and like we're in a fight for talent all those sorts of things as well and all the, the data journey that surprised you you said that you've now had to to go on is there in your experience not that we should be trying to find that one but one example data point or something that has helped to make that case or that argument or that business case that you've talked about or is it really kind of quite contextually specific as in no one size fits all no it's not one size fits all I think organizations just vary hugely and not even not just organizations but within organizations teams things can vary team by team I mean I think the one size fits all thing it's a poor use of resource and investment because things are so different and by the way I think we're all so busy thinking about the negative things but you know, within organisations and going in and fixing those. But actually, you know, within pretty much most organisations, there are pockets where people are absolutely flourishing. There are business units where attrition rates are low, where people seem happy, where the energy seems high, where, you know, so I do think it's also an exercise in understanding within an organisation what's going really well and why. And if we can get to the bottom of that, can those things be can be distributed, learned from, shared across the organisation. I think what's really interesting, just listening to you talk, Georgie, and it's something that I reflect on quite a lot in the work that we do. One of the considerations that I find myself musing on is, is the extent to which our leaders, our commercial leaders today, are actually in on the spectrum of burnout themselves because of the ongoing levels of uncertainty. And I think uncertainty generally just triggers quite interesting reactions in people. A reflection that I have based on, it's observational, just based on what I've, I've seen in my life so far is that when uncertainty kicks in, people have a propensity to try and micro control their environments, which may feed into this whole back to normal narrative. I was on a call last week with a client who was talking about one of their clients and this individual having said that he is still having to deal with the fallout of Brexit and doesn't need the un added uncertainty of staff wanting to work in a hybrid fashion. Therefore, his mandate is everybody back into the office full time. And I I find myself wondering about how much of the 
systemic challenges that we're facing as we contemplate the redesign of work in the 2020s arises from the general exhaustion levels and lack of qualified support for business leaders. I think there's lots of brilliant coaches out there. I think there's lots of lacklustre coaches out there. Who do business leaders go to for their support and advice and mentoring and replenishment of energy levels? And and I might be speaking out of turn, but I have a couple of friends who've gone through the burnout cycle who have said to me, independently of one another, that the worst thing about it is that you don't realise that you've burnt out until you have burnt out. And so if that is true, which is their experience, I just wonder how many people are trying to grapple with these complex issues from a point of inadequate energy levels and therefore inadequate mental capacities to start off with, if that makes any sense. I just think we're all exhausted. I listened to a brilliant podcast the other week. It was with Charlotte Church, actually, and she was embarrassed about the fact that she had riffed from Kanye West, (laughs) who's probably not the person that you want to be riffing off too much at the moment, but he had referred to the post-pandemic state as having rendered us all trauma drunk. And I thought, my gosh, that's a really apposite term because we are all just absolutely exhausted from and by this experience. And also by the fact that the pandemic is still raging around us, it's that our governments have chosen now to marginalise it and ignore it. And so I don't know about you guys, but I know people who are presenting with all the symptoms of COVID, but not testing positive, presumably because the testing equipment was apposite for maybe several mutations back and isn't able to capture where they're at now. But, you know, long COVID, all of these things, we're all just exhausted. And I feel in the wake of Mental Health Awareness Week, we ought to nod to the fact that that is very present for all of us and that it's okay to feel exhausted also I know it's it's really interesting I very often use the frog in the pot analogy you know of of, it's just this idea of recalibration and recalibration and recalibration until you know we become inured to what's around us and I, I when it comes to the exhaustion levels of leaders and also what we expect from leaders in terms of role modeling, better behaviors, etc. I think anything, anything, and you know, I am a huge proponent, a huge proponent of coaching. I was surprised, which is silly of me really, but you know, that in some cases there is stigma around coaches because it's seen as somehow if you have a coach, it's remedial as opposed to additive and enriching and you know, and so, and you know, those attitudes still prevail, but I'm a passionate believer in that. And I'm also anything we can do, and this is really hard, but anything we can do just to get those really, you know, I mean, obviously for everyone, but particularly leaders where we're asking them and expecting them to role model, but just think and tune in to their own workplace well being just a little better. How can we do that? How can we tip them 
into thinking about themselves for a brief moment. You know, it was extraordinary. One of my colleagues, so we create these individual wellbeing reports and you can actually, you can have a kind of coaching session around your individual report. And that's, I think that can be really powerful with leaders for the reasons we've been talking about, which is just to give them just for a minute, just tune out of everything and think about yourself. And with this particular leader in a financial services organisation, they felt that their well-being was pretty good to start off with. You know, they were quite confident that they didn't really have too many kind of challenges. A little further into the conversation, it turned out they were a chronic insomniac. And so, you know, it's, it's this sort of thing that goes on. And you're absolutely right, Kat. People making decisions about, you know, not only to business level, but at a people level, etc., just running on absolutely nothing in the tank. And I think it's, you know, it is a real challenge. And if you've seen people, it sounds like you have seen a few people close to you. You know, burnout does feel like this kind of thing you read about in the press. But when you actually see someone that you know really well experiencing it, it is pretty properly horrific. People just being just this shadow of themselves. This particular person talked about they only realised they'd been living with a permanent headache when it went, you know, the, just the way kind of that stress works, etc. And so, yeah, so I, I mean, it's incredibly hard out there. The trauma drunk is, I haven't heard that phrase, it's, I must watch that podcast. But, you know, I mean, I guess another word for it is, is it, you know, is the term that Adam Grant introduced, which is still so extraordinarily apposite, which is, you know, the whole notion of languishing and this kind of this no man's state where there's, you know, it's not necessarily ill being or well being, but there's kind of aimlessness, this pointlessness, there's, you know, so, so many people, when you talk about that state, particularly just, I mean, I suppose, in the recent months after the pandemic, so massively identified with that. And if you're thinking about a workplace, and you've got over 50% of your employees in that no man's land in that state of languishing, I mean, that's having a massive impact on the culture in that organisation. So, yeah, my thing on that, all of that, is how do we challenge our leaders? How do we get people to tune into their own well-being just for a little bit of time to try and really take stock of where they are? And that it, that is so on point as well, because we get lifted up or dragged down by the people that we spend our days with, right? If you come into work and your counterpart is, low you will get dragged to their point of lowness and if they are up energized invigorated you will get lifted up and I think that's a really interesting point so for me something that I think is so important is that we do continue very open discourse around energy levels and burnout and the general exhaustion that comes with navigating continuous uncertainty I don't think our government is doing us any favors by trying to maintain a back to normal narrative and I'm also curious to ask you Georgie obviously the, the people that tune into this podcast are internal communicators so I'm a strong advocate of communication being a restorative salve in terms of well-being what role do you feel internal communication can play in soothing in work anxiety and or mental ill health well I have to say I think 
internal comms has such a huge role. I mean, it's communication is just such an unbelievably broad term. I mean, internal comms, it's, it's in many respects, I do think of it as kind of the oil that makes the whole organizational engine work. And it's so multifaceted. It's so complex. It touches people, systems, processes in so many different ways. And yet a bit like burnout, we go in with such, you know, I'm talking from the outside world in with such a kind of slightly rudimentary kind of basic understanding of the role, but it is so many things. So actually one of my colleagues, and I must send this to all of you, wrote a really great article on communication on LinkedIn recently, just saying that, you know, there's we think about the obvious things, but actually a little bit like when you ask employees and they say, you know, I've just got too much work. I've just got too much work. Communication is one of those things where it's just, you know, the communication is broken. It's just like used as a slightly catch-all malaise, if you like, when underneath it, there is just so much light and shade and texture and nuance. And goodness me, getting to the drivers that sit behind those comments, I think is absolutely key. So anyway, I will send you all this article to have a look at. But in terms of what internal comms, I think, you know, what can be done around anxiety and mental health and well-being, I think it's really one of the things is just pushing, pushing, pushing to get as much evidence as possible to understand where it's really good and where it's really bad. And if you don't have the data for that, there will be still reasonably good intuition, I think, around it. I mean, you know, quite often when we speak with people leaders, etc., they do have an intuition. It's just the challenge is what to act on first to make the greatest impact. So I think it's trying to get to the drivers behind things. You know, what what is really making people unhappy? What is really sapping their energy? So I guess there's getting that kind of evidence, which is one piece. And then another thing I think that internal comms can do, and this is maybe just having said how you know complex and multifaceted, maybe this is a gross oversimplification, but you know, I would say almost straight off the bat, a no-brainer thing to do is to take this topic of organizations often having very good resources in place, but people don't use those resources because they don't know they exist. If they do know they exist, they don't trust them. If they do know they exist, they don't self-identify with them. So as a straight off the bat short term piece to soothe anxiety and promote better mental health and well-being if there are good resources it's something about taking those out and thinking about how those can be understood recommunicated consistently communicated shared story told whatever it takes so that at least in the very immediate future what an organization is already investing in can bring some good to the working environment through people kind of availing themselves of those resources. So that's kind of like almost like a very basic thing that we know could be done and could make a difference. But then it's got to be that bigger, longer term piece of just digging behind, you know, what is it? What's driving the challenges and issues within the workplace? When people say communication isn't right or communication's broken, which invariably, let's be honest, most engagement surveys cough out communication is suboptimal and so but you know that's just a very blunt way of looking at it so what's really going on behind it and I think that to me is the piece and trying to get the evidence as much as we possibly can so that instead of just doing blanket stuff you can go in and be really quite surgical in terms of of where action is taken and ideally working with the people who are most impacted 
by what's suboptimal so that they become part of the solution. I don't know if that answered your question. I mean, it's difficult because I think you are all things to all people. And it's, you know, it's quite challenging to unpick it all and really get to the heart of what's at play and what's driving what. You know, I think therein lies the perennial challenge because communication is the lifeblood of any organisation. But because it's an inherent human skill, we take it for granted. And I think, you know, you only notice it when it is suboptimal and otherwise just assume that things kind of carry on as normal. But that was a great answer. And you've you've had me thinking differently about the issue at large. So thank you very much. Oh, my goodness. No, I'm, I was actually just sitting there holding my breath. So I really insulted <laughs> everyone. No, I just think it's I think your job is just so much bigger and so much harder than is commonly understood. I'd agree with that. I think there's also something around having a debate with leaders, because I think sometimes perhaps we get a little bit guilty of groupthink. And as we're talking, I think, yes, this is absolutely right. This makes huge sense. But I had a bit of a, a, a check recently. I was with a group of leaders. I won't mention the organisation. And I had quite strong pushback about the whole area of paying attention to well-being and mental health. Along the lines of people saying, yes, we're busy, but we've got more assistance, more support than we've ever, ever had. Yes, life's traumatic, but we've not, we're not living through a world war. We haven't a cold war. We haven't got the issues that people had then. Yes, people are under pressure, but we're all more, probably most of us are more materially comfortable than we've ever been. And I was quite taken aback by this and realised actually there's a, there's a bit for communicators about having the debate and saying these things aren't necessarily relative. They are about you and how you respond to your circumstances and situations. So I guess I liked what you've been saying. There's a strong role here for communication to allow people to have conversations, to allow people to ask questions if they don't understand something, to to debate it. But I, mean, I guess it's allied to what we were talking about a moment ago. But what's your experience of, of doubters, if you like, people who perhaps don't give as much credence to the importance of mental health or don't feel as though it's a significant issue as as most of us do? How do you deal with that, I suppose? Yeah, well, first of all, I think that the, the challenge around it is that there's a few things. There's we've always kind of got by before. So, yes, we know this is important and we want it to be good. We want it. I mean, you know, who doesn't want it to be a healthier, more energized, more motivated workforce? Of course, everyone does. I mean, I don't think there's a leader out there who would say they wanted anything different from that. But it's just where it sits on the priority list. And I think partly, you know, because everything is so challenging and traditionally it hasn't sat as high up as it possibly could, well, should do, in my opinion. And so it's how do you nudge it up? How do you nudge it up? How do you nudge it up? Now, there are some organisations who will go, do you know what? We, we absolutely get it. We see it. And, you know, from a moral perspective, from a business perspective, you know, from a productivity performance perspective, we know that this needs to come right to the top. And in other organisations, that just isn't cutting it. So one of the other interesting things is about bringing the business case to it, because, you know, again, we're in a commercial setting. And I think that if we can bring numbers to the story, that in some cases is going to help. Not all. I mean, let's be honest, Deloitte have got articles out there which talk about the ROI on you for every pound spent, etc. You know, there's a lot of intelligence around this now, but I do suspect it always looks a bit like other people's holiday photographs, unless you can come in and go, right, you know, organization X, this is how much, by not doing anything, this is how much it's costing you. So I think there's, you know, sometimes we just need to re realize that 
in order to catalyze change, there are different levers you can pull on. Sometimes the moral, moral, ethical levers, they, you know, they're enough. Sometimes you need to bring other things into play. So I think where we can bring any kind of sense of bottom line impact, I think that also can go some way in terms of helping people shift this up the priority list at a board level. Georgie, I, we, we have to come into land. So can, uh, pulling together what we've talked about, you've given us hope by saying, look, we're moving in the right direction. It's a rocky road, there are going to be setbacks, but that we're moving in the right direction in terms of organisations recognising the value and importance of wellbeing and mental health and doing stuff about it. I think you've made it, given us a clarion call about finding out what's going on in our organisations. You've talked about the levers organizations can can use to help alleviate people's position help improve their mental health help improve their well-being but it's going to be different for different teams different people different organizations and you've talked about the, the importance of getting clarity i suppose through measurement but also through observation and lastly you've talked very practically about speaking a language that leaders are going to understand and sometimes that's going to be looking at the bottom line the business impact of poor mental health of, of poor, poor well-being so it'd be great to get from you, if it's possible, what's the one thing that you would like listeners to this podcast to take away to help improve the environment that they work in or their colleagues work in? It's the D word. I think it is all about getting the right data. And I don't mean adding one or two well-being questions onto the end of an engagement survey. It's about getting the data. It's about bringing evidence to the story and taking the guesswork out of it. There's so much guesswork that's going on right now. So that would be my one thing, which is, do you have the data which shows you, tells you what the mood and state of your people is right now? Do you know that? I wonder how many business leaders really know what the mood and state of their people is right now. Georgie, thank you very much. Very clear. We're going to go out and get that data now and be much clearer about what we're working with and how we can (laughs) make some informed decisions about it. So... Thank you very much. Thank you so, so much for coming and chatting with us today. Thank you, Georgia. That's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have, please like it and share it with your friends and colleagues on your preferred digital channels. Every recommendation helps us spread the word to build a better, more connected and inclusive future of work. Thanks for listening.